On the Record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk. Now, it's easily forgotten these days when there are 10 clubs in the League of Ireland Premier Division and five of them are based in Dublin that Dublin wasn't always the dominant source of uh, football, soccer, association football, whatever you might like to call it, um, in the country. But it does give rise to a fascinating new history about the history of association football, soccer, whatever you want to call it, uh, in the capital. It's called Soccer and Society in Dublin, a history of association football in Ireland's capital. And its author from Trinity College is Dr. Connor Curran, who is with us in studio now. Uh, Connor, thank you so much for coming in. Um, it is easily forgotten, isn't it, now? We, we look at soccer through a 21st century lens and you look at there being Shamrock Rovers and Pats and Bows and, and uh, Shelburne and, and UCD right now as well. Easily forgotten that it wasn't always the, the real hotbed of soccer on the island. Hi, Gavin. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, if you look back at the 19th century, late 19th century, Belfast really was the centre of, of soccer in Ireland. First matches were played there in uh, 1875. Dublin was a bit slower to get started. Um, the first two clubs in Dublin were actually sort of elitist clubs, really, in, in um, Dublin Association Football Club, which was made up of public school boys and those from England who'd been in college there. And also you had the team from Trinity College, um, Dublin University, Association Football Club, which were both founded in 1883. Um, so really those those League of Iron clubs that you mentioned there, they were a bit slower to get started, mm. maybe the 1890s, early 1900s. Yeah. Is, is that more to do with the social classes that football was being played in, uh, even on the neighbouring islands, so much as uh, or the reason why it was so slow to get going over here, the reason why those were the first two clubs? Yeah, I, th- I think um, er- early on, I suppose, the, the first clubs would have been sort of, you know, I mean, they would have seen it as kind of nearly a, so- a social kind of occasion, like going to play the matches, a, a chance for that sort of um, interaction. Um, the the later clubs then would have been more maybe working class, I suppose, mm. like so Shelburne. Um, but um, really, I suppose if you, look, if you look back at the first first clubs in Dublin, um, like there would have been some opposition from from rugby organisers in the city to the playing of of soccer in Dublin. Um, they saw it as kind of invading on their sporting space. Um, you see that in newspaper letters um, into the Irish Times and the, the newspaper Sport, which was the the you know one of the top sports specialist newspapers at that time. And mm. they didn't really want soccer coming in because it had a lesser number of players. I suppose they felt it might have been you know taken away from from their teams. Um, and there was opposition to to soccer from rugby organisers. It's, stri- time. it's striking now, looking at it through 2023 eyes, that uh, rugby had a problem with soccer emerging, even though the soccer teams or the soccer clubs were primarily made up of people from the upper social classes. That in, in a time before there was a lot of working class participation in team sports, and of course this is a time before mm. there was GAA, and yet you still have the, these two sports that are dipping for, or swimming in the same pool as regards the social class that they're drawing from, and that rugby thought that it was under attack from there being another sport coming up on its doorstep. Yeah, I suppose rugby got there first, like um, in the 1870s um, with the IRFU being founded and AFA wasn't founded until 1880. Um, and I suppose even if you look at, there was a team founded in the, in the Matter Hospital in 1891 by a man called Frank Whitaker, and he faced some opposition from the, the rugby club there, which had kind of gone into decline, but he was able to overcome that. So I suppose they kind of settled down a bit then and they worked more closely together and there would have been an overlap between teams and players. 
but um, initially there was that kind of that kind of resentment. I mm. think. Yeah. Was it around that time then that you start to have the emergence of some clubs that aren't solely drawing from the higher social classes that are more everyday working men? Yeah, I suppose the first two clubs um, in Dublin, the, the, the Trinity Club and the Dublin Association Football Club, they kind of stuck to themselves really and they played in AFA's competitions in Belfast. But it wasn't until about 1887 that you saw there was a, a Montpellier club in Stony Batter, which was a kind of a working class club and made up of, um, I think it was, there were some cricket players in it actually. And you also had um, uh, Bells Academy, which was a, a club that was made up of those preparing for jobs in the civil service. Okay. And there was another team, 1887, Britannia, they were called. They were from um, the Central Model School in, in Marlborough Street. So you sort of see a kind of emergence away from the, the two main clubs at that mm. time. And then, of course, in 1890, then you had Bohemians, which were, um, they had some sort of Belfast influence with George Sheehan, who'd been at school in Belfast. And um, one of the reasons soccer kind of develops then in Dublin is because you have you have people from cities like Belfast and, and some from England, you know, involved in these clubs mm. um, and you see more sort of um, workplace teams emerging in the, in the 1890s then <clears throat> like for example you know Shelburne and um, well, Shelburne it was founded as a workplace club was it? Well they were, they were founded by I suppose they were, they were, they were workers like that. one of the key men in it initially James Rowan he worked for Dublin Corporation Okay, so they would have been um, different, different to Bohemians and Bohemians would have been more sort of medical men and, and military initially and and of course, Shelburne went went professional in 1905, whereas Bohemians stayed amateur up until the late 60s. God, there's yeah. a real uh, <laughs> there's a real culture shock when you think about some of the financial woes of the League of Ireland in the last 30 or 40 years. To think that Shells were professional in 1905 and and the way that the game has gone on, yeah. on the island since then. I suppose around that time, then, if you've got more clubs that are emerging in Dublin, mm. is that when you start to see um, different kind of football associations? like unions emerging within Dublin so that these teams are playing against each other and that they're not yes. traipsing up and down to Belfast. Yes, that would be an important development. In 1892, the Leinster Football Association was was set up and that was really key to the growth of soccer in Dublin because it gave clubs and teams um, an organised competitive structure of matches which took away from playing odd friendly matches here and there and it gave them something to fight for and they uh-huh. had the Leinster FA Cup um, first played in the final was first played in Sandymount in 1893 and Leinster Nomads won that, but um, Leinster Nomads, what a great name! <laughs> yeah, they, they were actually a kind of a development on the, the Dublin Association football team, which I mentioned. They mm. they actually kind of went into decline. Um, actually, they weren't they weren't happy with um, some of the events with with the IFAM, and they kind of went into decline. And then the Leinster Nomads, some of their players took over from that, and they were based out in Sandymount. They had a nice pitch out in by Sandymount Green at that time, and. Um, yeah, so this competitive structure then, and of course, Bohemians and, and Shelburne by the early 1900s they joined the Irish League, so they were there was teams coming down from Belfast to mm. play in competitive matches, and that would have attracted interest in the grounds and in, in the games as well yeah. with the crowds as well. Because yeah. this, this was at the time it was notionally an all Ireland league, although it was predominantly Belfast and Belfast or in Belfast's orbit, and there was only the couple of odd teams from from Dublin that were yeah, playing within exactly, it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, how popular was um, soccer, football, association football at the time uh, relative to other sports? Because you mentioned there that rugby felt like it was originally under threat because mm. it might draw the playing numbers. But in a time where Gaelic games itself was only in its infancy, yeah. how how big a draw was football? Yeah, I suppose if you look at some of the crowds in, in the, the 1893 Leinster Cup final, there was around a thousand people at that out in Sandymount. 
Um, moving on then to about 1897, Bohemians played a match against a military selection, the West Kent Regiment, I think, at, at the Esplanade, which is, I think, where Collins Barracks is now. Okay. And there was like 4,000 people at that. So you could see the numbers starting to go up. And then England came here to play in, in 1900 in the first international that the AFA allowed played, played in, in Dublin. And there was like 5,000 people at that. So you could see the the... Attendance was gradually getting higher. And I suppose you have to remember too that football, or association football, or soccer was becoming fashionable at that time as well, all around the world. And um, you had like South America and you know um, English migrants um, and, and okay. the railway and so on setting mm. up clubs and so on and around around Europe as well. So it was kind of a fashionable thing too to be playing soccer at that time. And is that then the point at which it it totally kicks off, or that it takes off in popularity, or then is there does it continue to snowball further into the twentieth century? Yeah, it's, it seems to kind of um, not really look back af- after that, I suppose, um, into the First World War. Then there's, you know, a bit of the decline, obviously, with players going off to play um, in the, or going off to, to serve in, in the British sure. military. Um, I think I, I counted, there was 10 clubs from Dublin. I think there was like, by November 1915, there was 350 players who'd actually gone to the front wow. from from um, those Dublin clubs like um, so it doesn't leave much of a playing base behind at all, then, does it? Yeah, I mean the the Leinster FAs um, they continued on with their matches throughout the war, but but their membership did did decline, and um, they kind of struggled on. And um, but teams like Bohemians, like they they lo- they lost forty members by the end of nineteen fourteen. Um, Shamrock Rovers had lost forty six of their players by the end of nineteen fifteen um, to the to the war effort, and other teams like. Even you know less less well known teams like St Mark's Athletic, like which would be a lower league Leinster team, they'd they just deferred to the end of the war because they they yeah. were so bad. There's, there's no point trying to, to mm. snagger on. So uh, um, th- th- this is beyond the scope of our chat, but th- if such a massive proportion of the Dublin soccer based population w- was drawn into the war effort, and we know that that participating in the war effort was contentious because many mm. Irish people would have thought, well, no, that's someone else's war; it's not our own. Yeah. Um, is that maybe some of the reason why this has all been, to some degree, forgotten out of history? Like, for example, like I don't think there's any, there's no plaque anywhere to say that 350 Dublin-based soccer players were going off to a war effort. Like, they're not memorial anymore. Yeah, that, that that's true. I suppose um, in the early stages of the war, like newspapers like the Evening Herald would have would have carried like rolls of honour and things from the various clubs like Shelburne and um, YMCA Stranville. Mm. Chapel is it um, Great Southern and Western Railway even had, had players that, that went to the war, but yeah, you're you're correct. Like I suppose it's kind of like as as you know into the 1920s it became more associated with a kind of a British thing and yeah and like the ARF you do have a have a plaque up at Lansdowne Road for their pals company that that um, went went to the war, but um, as far there's, as I know, comparable soccer one. Yeah. yeah, as far as I know, the FEA or even the like you have Clontarf Cricket Club have a, have a role of honour up. But as far as I know now, none of the League of Ireland clubs have anything up to commemorate their players who served. If you go forward then to the um, the the nineteen fifties onwards, and you're getting to the time where we're, we're a little bit before some of the big glamorous English names coming to the League of Ireland for their sort of their payday towards the twilight of their careers. But you, you mm. do get to a point in the fifties where a lot of the the more prominent Dublin sides are almost acting as feeders for the big um, English teams. You're talking about them having like, you know, real ongoing and deep connections with Everton or, or Liverpool or Manchester United. How does all of that come about or where does that culture spring from? Yeah, well, I suppose it, I suppose it always been um, Dublin players going to England since the early 1900s, but 
I suppose you're you're right to say in the 1950s it was like Everton had a big connection with with um, Dublin. Like they had, um, I think it was about nine players in, in the Everton Force team from wow. about, from about post war years from about 1945 to 52. They, they'd signed about um, nine nine Irish players, um, and that was kind of because they had. Um, uh, a scout in 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 Dublin, um, the name of Howard Pickering. I think he was he was a man who recruited Mick Megan that played for Everton when they won the league in in sixty three, and they they also had a director in Dublin who who was related to somebody from the locality. Um, okay, he, uh, Dick Sorrell was his name. He um, so that gives them the connections in the city. But, and Everton, but it's striking that you, you need so relatively few connections. You think now about how elaborate all the scouting systems for all the big elite English teams are over the world, that, and it's as simple as having well one fella in Dublin who's got his eye out on the good local talent, and he sends them over, and suddenly the champions of England have signed nine of them. Yeah, I think um, um, like I suppose Everton um, they, they had a, they had a fan they actually had a fan club in Dublin in 1954. They had, they had a, a supporters club set up in, in um, Henry Street there, and there would have been. Obviously, there would have been a big Irish population in Liverpool, and you had the connection sure. with the the nineteen forty nine match, the famous match at Goodison Park when Ireland beat England. Um, oh, but, that's um, right. England's first loss in home soil. Yeah. yeah, but um, yeah. So then you see clubs like Man United, then like with um, Billy Behan and um, mm. um, Arsenal with um, with um, Bill Darby and so on, developing scouting network networks in in Dublin and. But like by about the nineteen seventies, then Liverpool were the team that kind of taken over from Everton in terms of support. The Everton had sort of stopped signing these Irish players, and Liverpool had Steve Highway won the European Cup in seventy seven and seventy eight. There was a friendly after the seventy eight European Cup final when um, the Liverpool team came over and played League of Ireland selection and. Um, the journalists at the time were, you know, they were giving out saying that, you know, the the fans were all supporting Liverpool. The the ground was was covered in red red jerseys. Now yeah. what's what's going on there, kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I, I think, seem to remember going to a preseason friendly for Man United versus I think a League of Ireland selection in the summer of twenty eleven. There being some some questions raised. I, I was there wearing my red, and there was plenty of people wondering <laughs> uh, why there were so many people uh, cheering for the the invading team rather than the domestic ones. Uh, we should spend a few minutes just before we finish up uh, because of the summer that it is talking about uh, women's football mm. uh, in Dublin. It has a probably an, an older history, at least been played as exhibitions than people might appreciate. Yeah, that's right, Gavin. Um, in 1896, there was um, some attempts to. There was a British ladies touring team that came to Dublin and, and made some attempts to pl- to organise matches at, at Jones's Road, which is, as you know, later became mm-hmm. Crow Park. Um, now that didn't really take off at the time. And then in uh, 1927, there was two Scottish teams that came over to play against um, play each other, and they also played against. Um, a Shamrock Rovers selection that was trained by Bob Fulham, the, the famous Shamrock Rovers player. But again, they're just you know there was doubts in the press whether that was the right thing to do, and of course it, had, it wasn't seen as being culturally acceptable at that time. Women yeah. playing football, and it wasn't really until the late nineteen sixties you had um, regional leagues in places like Waterford. Waterford were very strong in the League of Ireland, and they sort of nurtured a women's team as well. Um, and you had the first Dublin leagues being set up um, 1969 I think 1970 then they had workplace teams in the civil service um, there was a man called Tony Grant who was involved in the civil service in Ballymun and he helped the, the ladies set up their civil service league at that time it must be um, very tricky though to even find people not only because of the, the perception there might have been about women in sport but also because this is still the time of the GAA having its ban 
and the idea mm. that if, if you were seen as any kind of a true gale or a patriot of any sort anyway, it was very difficult to get people to sort of put their heads above the parapet and play in soccer because it would mean they were being excommunicated from even going to a Gaelic Games ground. Yes, I suppose there was always an overlap between GA and soccer players. Um, the GA had a vigilance committee in operation by about 1924 mm. and would have been kept keeping an eye. But um, I think at the same time, a lot of time, if the players were good enough, they, were, they got away with it sometimes. There was, <laughs> there was a player called Jimmy Joy who'd played for um, Black Rock Rugby and he'd played for Dublin and Leinster final in the 1940s and he reckoned if... If you were good enough, now you'd get away with it, but mm. because they couldn't afford to leave you out. But that, what that wasn't always the case. Now there was numerous players who were banned and who were, um, who weren't given their medals. Like Owen Hand, famously, didn't get his um, Dublin Minor medal in the nineteen sixties when he'd he'd been playing over in England. He come back. He was mm. a, the free taker for Scully Connell. I think it was actually under twenty ones. I think they'd won the under twenty one championship, but they wouldn't get the, the club president wouldn't give him his medal because he was. He'd already. Famous. He's already England. gone to play across the water. Yeah. Uh, as a final reflection, um, Connor, um, what what do you make of how the game has flourished now, where there is such positivity behind the League of Ireland, behind the the Dublin clubs now looking to expand their grounds because they're routinely full? And where does it go from here? Yeah, I think it's important. Like the the clubs do need to definitely improve their grounds. I suppose like Shamrock Rovers would be an exception in that case now. But there is developments with Bohemians and at Talca Park at the moment, so that should improve things. And they've got a lot of young, good young players in the League of Ireland, and they've got a good social media um, following and and mm. advertising is, is helping that as well. And of course, television as well. So. Um, Yes, was the future looks looks bright for for Dublin soccer and League of Ireland soccer? Thank you. Uh, onwards and upwards. Um, thanks so much for for talking us through it. It's a fascinating it's piece, and it's all outlined in Soccer and Society in Dublin: A History of Association Football in Ireland's Capital. And its author is Conor Curran. Conor, thanks so much for joining us. That's great. Thank you, Gail. Thanks. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at eleven. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.